Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Titan Talk podcast. I am Nicholas Bruno, also known as Pumped and Wine. Uh, we got no Andy Wilson today, but I am joined by uh, my fabulous co-host, Jose Moniz. Jose, how are you doing today? Very well, very well. Had a really interesting week on a, on a personal level, uh, but I'm, I'm glad that I was finally able to, to, to join the recording because I've been far away with a, a new job so yeah i i was really worried for i was really worried for a little bit there when you got the new jo- job if you were going to be able to keep doing the podcast so i'm really glad t- that you're still here that you're still with us yeah yeah uh it's uh it's it was sort of hectic to to find a schedule but uh i think we can make it work for sure and uh yeah i'm all up for it Cool, cool. Uh, so, did you end up playing in the showcase this weekend? Uh, I did not. Yesterday, I have a tradition, usually on Saturday, to just do house cleaning. So, sadly, no, I couldn't play the showcase. I would like to play the showcase. I would have liked to play the showcase, and I probably would have played Yog at the showcase. But uh, just because I expected, uh, I really expected a lot of what happened to line up with the metagame, which was a lot of Murktide. Um, and uh, I had my, my own secret tech to beat four color. So, so I wanted to play that. Sadly, I couldn't. Uh, I also, I, I, I mean, I didn't spend the whole day cleaning. I had a few hours of my day yesterday for an RCQ. Uh, it was a pioneer one. I played faithful mono red and I got twelfth. So, kind of a, kind of a bummer overall. <laughs> yeah, that that is a bummer. Yeah, I it just it was an interesting RCQ. Probably not, or sorry, uh, showcase. Probably not a bad one to miss. Looking at this like top thirty two and just the glut of Merktide, and I guess if you yeah. if you're well prepared for Merktide, but. Uh, yeah, certainly not one you wanted to bring Amulet to. I mean, obviously I'm going to because, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> why not? But, uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, so, like, I know there was a lot of Amulet in the showcase as well because uh, I faced two Amulet players uh, in the Swiss. Uh, one was actually House. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Uh, and then I know Francisco was playing. He recorded the showcase. And then we actually got an amulet list in the top eight, which I think is uh, pretty impressive considering just the uh, just the yeah. glut of Merktide around. Uh, I, I believe they played against Merktide three times and went to one, which obviously is a low like uh, sample group, but still the, the list is most definitely something. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the big, uh, like if we're, we should probably talk about this list. I think the big standout uh, glaring things in this list that are uh, surprising are Sakura Tribe Elder and Colony Garden in the main deck. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I do want to say, like, I know people think this is really shocking, but honestly, I don't see this list as like, all that different from regular lists like you replace these sakura tribe elders with explorers and this basically looks 
if you ignore the colony like standard game. list yeah. yeah it's it's a stock amulet and i guess like specifically if you're trying to like block ragavans and beat blood moons like i can kind of see why you would make that sakura tribe elder call over you know over explore if that's what you're yeah. trying to do i i think um I saw the list. Uh, we've we've seen this player before, uh, Gurig, uh, and we've talked a bit about his lists. And uh, I distinctly remember not in, not liking one of his lists because, if I'm not mistaken, it played like both haste lands and like seven untapped sources or six untapped sources. I believe he mm -hmm. like top eight at a challenge once with that deck, and uh, I I roasted him. And uh, in my opinion, rightfully so, but now I'm swallowing my words. Yeah. I really, 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 from the bottom of my heart, I really think this list is very interesting. And it does something very good against Murktide and against your number one hate card, which is Blood Moon and Magus of the Moon. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the mana base... If previous mana bases from this player were, in my opinion, a train wreck, I think this mana base is close to perfect. And the reason why I'd say it's close to perfect is because of a simple addition of four Cavern of Souls. Mm -hmm. So it it comes as obvious, right, that we're playing multiple Cavern of Souls in the main deck because of Murktide and other blue X base control decks that can come up. Uh, Counterspell being the big, the huge addition to modern than it was. But caverns here play a completely different role once you replace explorers with Sakura Tribe Elders. What I mean by that is, uh, in a combinatory sense, if you're not leading on Grazer on one, it is very difficult for Amulet to have explore mana on two. If you don't lead with Amulet or Grazer, it is very difficult for the deck to have explore mana on two. Uh, you need to have an untapped source always, or and you need to have another untapped source to, to be able to explore on two. So what Cavern of Soul gives this deck is a very interesting dynamic where it increases your uh, your trees uh, your branches of play into a turn two elder way more frequently because now if you're no matter what your turn one land is if your turn two land is a cavern on snake you can cast the the sakura tribe elder yeah i actually like that unlock yeah go ahead go ahead. i actually hadn't really considered how much uh like the caverns like wanting to play all these four caverns right now how much better as far as like more castable secure tribe elder is than explore yes it is um, it is a, a magnitude right because we're talking about say you lead you have how many lands so they're playing on uh, nine bounce lands i believe they're playing nine bounce lands total which is on the short side but okay um Nine bounce lands total, so that's 23 minus 9, that's 24. Miscounting all four caverns, you can, and the Vesuva. That's like all of the 19 lands could be put into play turn one, and if they're led on cavern, you can play a Secure Tribe Scout. Mm -hmm. Like that's, 
a huge difference. Like it's it's a big jump in the right direction to casting the spells that you put in your deck. Yeah. And here, because you're playing Sakura Tribal, they're not explore. You need sort of a different take on your mana base. And I think the four caverns almost serve as fixing rather than, you know, the gotcha cavern Titan is encounterable use that we more often see. Yeah. And I, I think that's really unexplored ground. Uh, although this player has tried it before, if I'm not mistaken, splashing Dranith Magistrate in their sideboard and using Cavern of Souls for in the main deck exactly as that, as a turn two land that you can play and actually serve as a splash. Except in this case, it's generating green. It's very, very relevant for the deck. And uh, we see the inclusion of Sakura Tribelder having ripple effects in the sideboard as well. Do you want to touch on the sideboard punt? Sure. Uh, so in the sideboard, we actually have a basic island. So Sakura Tribe Elder becomes blue fixing as well, uh, which allows us to cast uh, Hydroid Crisis, which I think is the big uh, interesting addition to the sideboard. I think it's, uh, I want to say Red-Faced Menace has been a huge proponent of Hydroid Crisis. Maybe I'm uh maybe i'm saying the wrong person uh but i know there was somebody who's been really i've seen a lot of really pushing hard on the hydroid crisis and basically the idea being is if you're expecting subtleties and you're expecting counter spells you can just slam a hydroid crisis you don't even need like a cavern of souls necessarily to slam mm. a hydroid crisis and just you know draw three four cards with the hydroid crisis gain a little bit of extra life and if they counter the body or you know dress down i think if they dress down it comes in as a zero zero and dies but like you just don't you just don't care right because you've drawn yeah. the cards which is like the i i don't think it etbs as a zero zero because it's not an xx it's a zero zero that enters with plus one plus one counters uh this is a good thing for us to look down uh because uh i i feel like people have killed walking ballistas as they enter the battlefield for me maybe that's an incorrect interaction on magic online but maybe i'm not sure like it makes sense for cards like cultivator colossus to die uh urza tokens to die because their power is malleable it changes uh tarmogoyf being a zero one uh, but I'm not sure how it happens with plus one, plus one counters. So but... I'm looking at a ruling here. It says, in general, if Dress Down is already on the battlefield, Walking Ballista will enter with no plus one, plus one counters on it, regardless really? of the value of X. So I wow. I think that would also be true for Hydroid Crisis. So a Dress Down would kill the body of the Hydroid Crisis. Yeah, but you still get to reap the rewards of the cast effect. Yeah. Right, right. Similar with uh, Emrak Cool the Promised End, so like against a four-color deck, you know, if they, uh, you know, are having Dress Down as a way to fight you, uh, you can, or counter spells, Emrak Cool the Promised End in the sideboard is a pretty powerful way that you can just sort of not care about any of the different interaction that all these sort of counterspell dress down subtlety decks are yeah. bringing in to fight you. Yeah, so I, I also think, you know, in speaking of fixing, so like for the Hydroid Crisis, 
you've got the four cavern of souls the two talaria west and the vestige in addition to of course the simic growth chambers and the sakura tribe elders so i think that blue mana and and obviously dryad of the elysian grove expedition map and primeval titan so i think i think that blue mana is is very very achievable in this list yeah i think like one of the things i remember when i first started playing amulet and i would get into sort of big arguments with people about how to build amulet the number one gripe i had about how everyone was building amulet is they just weren't playing the lands to cast their spells yeah and which i think this list is doing like they are playing a very reasonable very very good mana base i'd say even right like say what you want about the spells this person is choosing to play they are playing the lands to play play that spells (laughs) they are playing those spells they are able to cast them yes (laughs) yeah which is more than you could say for a lot of players when they build amulet i think for sure i agree um you know, like, I, I don't know if Inferno Titan is the way I want to fight Blood Moon, especially with, like, Unholy Heat being legal, um, seeing Inferno Titan. I think Inferno Titan, I think Inferno Titan is by far the weakest part of, of the deck. Right. I think it's too cute. It, yeah, I'm sure it's one games. I mean, like, you wouldn't be an amulet player if you couldn't, like, point back to be like, Okay, but this one time, it was so great. This unplayable card gave me the game. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's it's giving me a lot of Zakama vibes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I think if I would play this in an event, uh, I'd... So, here's my slight gripe with the list. Okay. I think playing two Colossus in the main deck... Mm-hmm. Uh is it leads me to some confusion on how you're approaching Inferno Titan and Krasis. So I get that, for example, against Murktide, you don't want the Colossus, but you might want Krasis and Inferno Titan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes to something like Four Color, mm-hmm. are you just not interested in the Inferno Titans and you just want the Krasis? And if so, what are you cutting? Mm-hmm. So, uh, also the Emrakul, like, so now we have, other than Titan, we have five uh, spells, two costs seven, uh, one costs X and two, and the other one costs usually something like ten mana. Mm -hmm. Like, I I imagine the Inferno Titans, like, I imagine you'd want them against four color because it kills magus of the moon right like inferno titan is to kill magus of the moon and also leave behind a relevant body sort of in a sky sovereign type fashion I exactly so 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 you're you're way overboarding against four color because the way so on the blind the way i'd sideboard against four color with this list i would bring in the island the dismember the emrakul the two inferno titans and the two crazes that's seven cards and yeah and like and i would cut checks notes nothing like uh, i'm probably I'd maybe cut on the grazers like some number of grazers i mean i think i would cut but... like bog garden and two sagas for sure you're bringing in an island you might need to bring in a besaju to keep up the land count if you're cutting those cards though 
Yeah, like, you're going down to 30 lands then, and you have two Colossus. Also, okay, what about this as a plan, though? What if you cut the... The Titans. No, no, no. <laughs> what if you cut the Sagas and cut the Amulets and say, nice prismatic endings you've got there. Nice March of Otherworldly Lights you've got there. <laughs> really you think that's the way to go i'm not saying nah, it's the I, way I, to go i'm just yeah. saying like i it's it's a thought i don't know yeah um the other thing sorry one other thing i wanted to mention about this list is zero radiant fountains in the 75 i i am a very i don't like that at all like i think people just uh defaulted to radiant fountain I haven't seen Burn in a while, so Radiant Fountain is bad, mm -hmm. which is not my experience at all. Uh, not when it comes to Burn seeing play or not, but there are so many scenarios, and particularly against Murktide, where Radiant Fountain plus Bog is like one of my usual pickups. Mm -hmm. So I, I've, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced of not playing Radiant, and that's my gripe with Radiant as well. Like, it's a card that I very rarely put in the sideboard, because like in, in, in the type of matchups where it's good, it's it's game changing. But it's only game changing if the scenario pops up, which makes it such an awkward card to bring in, mm -hmm. because like, uh. Are you actively wanting Radiant Fountain against Murktide? No, but you like the option, right? So that's why Radiant Fountain, for the most part, just defaults to a main deck choice. And uh, as weird as it sounds, like, it, so if I felt that my, my amulet deck was well-poised to beat Murktide in games two and three... Uh, that Pajugabog would go in the sideboard, for example, for Radiant Fountain. The way I see it, for example. Um, so, not having Radiant Fountain irks me, but if I would play Radiant Fountain, I would play it in the main deck, and I'd probably cut a Cully Garden for it, but it, the Cully Garden is also a card that randomly opens a lot of Steve lines. Like, the fact that you can go Cully Garden on one, and then you can play... Cavern on another type, mm -hmm. or Slayers, or Sunhome, or or Sagas, mm -hmm. like, and Cast a Steve, like, I don't know, or the Radiant Fountain. I, yeah. I think there's been an uptick of those sort of, like, uh, like, Indomitable Creativity Archon of Cruelty decks, and I think Colony yeah. Garden is a good thing to be able to like grab off primeval titan if you're if there's a chance a archon of cruelty is either entering the battlefield or attacking next turn i think i think if colony if if Gurig put colony garden thinking about that deck i think that's extremely smart uh again i wouldn't bother with that deck a lot for the sole reason that i think it's an awful matchup for titan i'm not sure mm -hmm. if you share the same experience i i like i feel hopeless every time i play against it i you know i think uh i've had a pretty reasonable time against it i've had some interesting things happen against it i had one game where i put an ensnaring bridge into play off of a karn and then my opponent mm -hmm. indomitable creativity to kill the ensnaring bridge and that put into play a primeval titan while I had a dryad in oh, play. No. Oh no! 
so I just oh. ended up killing all their archons. Oh my god. Um, what do you mean? No. That that was probably my favorite thing that's ever happened in that matchup. But um I don't I don't think it's like terrible because I think they sometimes Okay, okay. They uh, times... counter argument, counter argument punt. Mm-hmm. If that game that you won, you had to minus confer ensnaring bridge. Mm-hmm. Do you still not feel that it's a bad matchup? I mean, okay, here's the thing. That, that's a silly example. Here's the thing. I think they're not generally very good at interacting with Urza's Saga, other than if, yeah, if they have sideboard Force of Vigors, which a lot of them do now, but uh, you know, it depends on how many of those sideboard Force of Vigors they have and if they draw them. So if they're not interacting with Urza's Saga... I think we're pretty good at making turn three primeval titans against decks that are not interacting with Urza Saga, and that's generally good enough. It, it... I think my biggest gripe is against I don't I'm not sure like previous versions played Remand mm-hmm. and like if you're not on a cavern start and a fast cavern start to boot, like you're you're going to get the fists, right? Like, it's... I mean, I also play... Like, Remand is going to destroy you. <laughs> I also play Karn a lot, and a lot of times I'll get the play of Karn minus for Engineered Explosives on zero, and then I'm just sort of yeah. protected from the... Uh, protected from the creativities or whatever. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, obviously Karn helps a lot in that matchup, Yeah. For sure. I mean, I think that's generally true of Karn in combo matchups. So I, I'm going to have a better chance you know, playing Karn against any combo deck than any non-Karn list. But, you know, I'm going to suffer against Murktide compared to a list like this. Yeah. No, I get that. Um, I think we... I get that for sure. I think we've probably talked enough about uh, this list, and maybe we should move on to uh, what we were going to talk about for today's topic, which was we wanted to talk about uh, coaching. Um, yeah. And I and I had a question that I wanted to ask uh, ask you mm-hmm. since we're talking about like the influence that other players can have on players uh, like learning how to play the game. I thought a nice introduction would be: Do you have any like lessons that you had somebody teach you, or you had somebody explain to you something like early on in your magic career that's just really like stuck with you, like that lesson or that phrase? Yeah, yeah, uh, I have. One for limited and one for constructed. The the limited one, like, super stuck to me because I started drafting and playing sealed when I was really young. So I was born in 95. I'm 27 right now. I started playing... I started drafting as a tater tot during original Ravnica. Like, learning to draft in original Ravnica. Um, And uh, my parents were super supportive at the time. And uh, I got somewhat good at drafting and playing limited. Uh, Then I I moved. I had no LGSs close to me. And I retook limited uh, in uh, once I got to university. So in 2013. Um, And um, at the time, I got to talk with a lot of Portuguese, great Portuguese minds, and I feel that when it comes to limited players, 
Like, I feel that Portugal is very well served. I would say, uh, biases aside and all of the uh, cheating scandals aside that plague a lot of the, the Portuguese players, like, uh, Marcio is still, I would say, top five all-time limited players. Like, the man is an absolute machine. And uh, he taught a lot of, like, the big players in, in Portugal. And one of them that I got to talk a lot to about draft was Bernard Santos. And uh, <clears throat> I, rem I distinctly remember, like, um, it was... We were training for nationals. Uh, no, we were training for uh, PT uh, PPTQ, uh, which was Dom Sealed, Dominaria Sealed. And I'm looking at my deck, and it's like a really solid blue-white deck. And uh, I'm having difficulties getting it down to 40 cards. And I tell Bernardo, hey, I think I'm going to play 41 cards. Um, and I'm going to, because I feel like the land ratios make more sense here. And I feel like all my spells are good. And, um, and he said, well, why don't you cut the Sarah Angel? And I'm like, what are you, fucking idiot? Come on, come on, man. You're, you're good at this. Like, you're good at the game. Why would I cut the Sarah Angel? It's my best card. He says, well, okay. So now you can tell what your best card is. So what's your second best card? I'm like, I don't know, like, maybe the Time of Ice? Uh, no, maybe the Icy Manipulator? He's like, okay, go all the way down to your 24th and cut that one. I'm like, fuck you, like, <laughs> you're right, but Jesus Christ, come on. <laughs> and um, I, I think that's like, it's knowing how to evaluate cards. Uh, and knowing, uh, in deck building, and I feel like that transmitted quite nicely, I think, into my role in Constructed, uh, is how to approach, uh, your deck and, uh, what are the, the weak links. Mm -hmm. And in Constructed, uh, I feel like my, my best advice, uh, was... Once I was playing, so I was, I started on MTGO during the pandemic and uh, it was a very, I was more of a meme amulet deck content creator. Like, oh, look at this cute card that I can put in this deck. Like, I'm going to try Bloodbraid Elf and Amulet now, or I'm going to do this with the list like i'm gonna i'm gonna play a dragon lord of tark in the main deck because it's flashy and it kills a lot of conspicuous snoops uh back in the back when snoop was gonna get banned in modern um and um i something clicked when <laughs> I, I i distinctly remember like fran took saw my tweet of uh playing bloodbraid elf and amulet uh, and he said, okay, like, this gives a good clickbait YouTube video and a good good clickbait stream. And the deck was awful. Like, totally awful. Like, I knew it was awful, but I was like, maybe maybe he, he can, like, 4-1. And, like, I, I can bait some people into thinking that it's good. Even though I didn't really believe it was good. And once that happened, I'm like, 
shit, man, like, is this why people are interested in, in, in my decks is just like these weird concoctions that work like once in a lifetime? And then I, I, I distinctly remember from then on, I'm like, I became sort of a no bullshit uh, amulet deck builder. Like, I, I still stick true to my guns and... I do think like you can you can you definitely have room to innovate, but I became way less flexible on what I'm trying to innovate. And I think that also transposes a lot into my coaching sessions, mm -hmm. uh, which sadly have been on a halt uh, in the past few days and past few weeks actually because of uh, moving jobs and all that and personal life. Uh, but but yeah, I'd say like those two were like my main lessons. For sure. You know, it's interesting because I think the limited lesson you mentioned is something that I use a lot for uh, constructed, but not necessarily yep. as much for the deck building as much as like the sideboarding, right? Because when you're looking mm -hmm. at your sideboard, like when I'm looking at my sideboarding for a certain matchup, I'm like, well, I really want to bring in this sideboard card. So what am I cutting? Well, okay, I'm going to put my Primeval Titans over here because I'm not cutting them. And I'm going to put my Amulets yeah. with that. And then probably my Summoner's Pact and my first copy of Azusa. And then like, mm -hmm. and then it just sort of like, you you narrow it down, you know, based on the yeah. matchup. Um, Completely. And so I think that that's like a that's an approach that can not only be useful for limited, but also constructed just in general for deck building. But even if you're a person who wants to like copy somebody else's list, I think like you sort of do deck building in magic, regardless of whether or not you build the deck, because when you're sideboarding, it's basically like on the fly deck building, Yeah, you know? So, yeah. Agreed. So it's, uh, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, like, speaking about the first example, I saw a tweet recently by Daryl Ayers, who was a very prominent Amulet player, on how he approaches deck building. And it is a very interesting tweet. Like, he showcased, uh, for example, he opens a binder uh, or a, a deck deck on MTGO, um, calls it Jund, Big Jund, called it Big Jund, and the other called it Big Eight Mulch because he's been playing a lot of 8 mulch uh, in Legacy. And what he does is he puts all the playable cards that he can conceive into that deck. Mm -hmm. So the deck ends up being like 200 cards. And then the sideboard ends up being like 70 cards, you know? And he just cuts from there. Like, he starts with this bulk of like 200 cards. He's like, okay, let's trim down the fat and you just get to the, the goal. You mm -hmm. just get to the objective. And I found myself doing the same thing for Yawgmoth um, because I felt like Amulet... I'm always looking for a challenge when it comes to deck building. And to be fair to the deck, and I don't mean this as an insult... Uh, I've spent so long with Amulet that it sort of became a bit formulaic to me. Like, I know what works and what doesn't. So my thought process doesn't start on 200 cards. It starts on 65. Like... Yeah. Yeah, so... 
there's really no point in doing that. Uh, but I, it, it, there was with Yawgmoth because I was very interested in the possibility of splashing uh, and uh, playing like all these different planeswalkers, playing vials, playing multiple Geralt's messengers, uh, playing more undying creatures, um, just trying out something and just trimming it down. Like it, it will lead you to a very good experience. And if you want to have like a feel for what that experience is, you can go to mtgtop8.com. I'm not sponsored by the way. You can look at like your archetypes, decks, and you can click on a button at the bottom that says compare decks and it will compile every single copy of a card of that deck uh, on the on the y-axis and on the x-axis it will say the player that piloted that deck and then the the data points are the amount of copies so it's a very easy thing to analyze and you can really get to grasp um, data patterns, right? Uh, for example, if you go to Amulet Titan, you will find that no list diverges in four amulets. Right now, none, no list diverges in four amulets, four grazers, four dryads, four pacts, four titans. Sure. What about the Colossus? What about the Explorers? What about, do I want to play Asian Stirrings? Do I want to play Adventurous Impulse? Do, do I want to play Oath of Nisses? Do I want to play... Uh, growth spirals and splash something like that like you can get a feel for the bulk and then see okay so what is the data most common data pattern and it's usually going to be for a boring card like explore so you're like okay maybe two explorers at least like i can put in my deck and i know what i'm doing uh and that will allow you to really get a feel for why decks are built like what purpose do we does each card play why is the why is player X thinking like this? It's and it's possible that you're gonna be able to spot the errors on your own, right? You are going to be able with time to see this is a trash deck. Like and being able to call a spade a spade. Um but it's most definitely a really good, really, really good, interesting uh deck building exercise that I feel like most of our viewers would be amulet players. So they sort of have a feel and a grasp for like, not only the core of the deck, but what fits them and what doesn't. But it's an exercise that I recommend nonetheless. Yeah, one of the things that I'm worried about, I think that's a really uh, good feature I like on MTG Top 8, and I've gone there before. But one of the things I've started to feel uh, bad about with MTG Top 8 and MTG Goldfish is um, it just doesn't feel like the data is good anymore like i don't know yeah. what what's maybe that's just because of what wizards is withholding or what types of tournaments get posted to those sites but like i mean i it just the meta games that those sites put out i can tell just like you can tell just by playing anything are just like completely unrepresentative of what the meta is right now um and like also like just yeah, I mean, Wizards does this weird thing where they, like, only post one list of each archetype each time they post. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really interesting. to. But, yeah, I, I do think that that comparison method is a good way uh, to get some ideas about things. 
I do. Uh, one of the thing I wanted to say is you talk about like how you have like a list of like sixty five playables for Amulet, and yeah, I think it's weird for me is like I feel like I could come up with two hundred. Like I really do. Like no, the, the, but the thing is, the thing is, you can. Right. But like your thought process of going from two hundred to sixty five will take like ten minutes. I don't. I don't know if about that because like I, because like I'm always like thinking about like oh and and maybe people don't realize how much i do this because how often i just keep coming back to karn but every once in a while i'm like i really want to play eladomri's call okay i want to do a white splash do i want to do reclaimer in the white splash do i want to do flagstones with the reclaimer do i want to play what sideboard cards do i want to play what new land options like i'm always thinking about like there's part of me that like wants to throw a temple of mystery back into amulet every once in a while or a colony garden or uh yep. you know there's the land that like uh that like gives a creature flying and there's been times i'm like you know i feel like a lot of titans are getting blocked maybe i should be able to give a titan flying or like hall of the storm giants the more and more i think about that card the more often i'm like i i every time i vesuva i can i can i can vouch for hall of the storm giants yeah i can personally vouch for the card right and so i think there's like you know and I, I trash on Sakura Tribe Scout a lot, but there's like always like a little part of me that's like, do I want to put a scout or two in this list? Do I want to go like a 3-2 split on Scout Grazer? Like, I, I don't know. I, I think I spend a lot of time like, I, I think that it's too easy to get too sort of locked in with with the amulet list the way you have it. I do a lot. I mean, you know, I I played around a lot. I did the sort of like lose to Blood Moon lists, um, where I yeah. was down to like two forests for a little bit, and I ultimately came came sort of back from that and went sort of back to where I was before that, pretty much. Um, just trying to reset, saying like, okay, I don't think I'm performing as well. Let's reset to the last moment where I was performing well. Um, yeah. I, I if I had to like describe both of us yeah i would say that you are a a fantastic deck builder like the list that you have have a plan and they're solid and i would put myself in the category of a deck tuner Mm -hmm. that makes a bit more like yeah i'm like to like steer the way of like watch out look for the mana base you know yeah Uh, how is this cyborg car performing is it good is it bad like i'm I very rarely will, like, I haven't gone through the thought process lately of, like, building a list from scratch, like, that I can call my own and that it's different enough from, like, all the spiel of amulet lists that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, eventually, when I have the time, when I have the patience. Yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> but if you Yeah, maybe I it, should. It'd be fun. Yeah. A fun exercise, something for us to talk about. Uh, one of the that could be something that could be something that could be like a, a good stream idea like get me or Andy on on your stream and you're mm-hmm. like and we'll build like the 200 card amulet deck and we'll like do some trends from there or like, even that might be an interesting idea or even just like let's go with some weird let's come up with like an Eladomri's call list yeah let's shoot the shit <laughs> let's come up with a you know just like figure out weird lists we can build yeah that would be a fun stream we should do that yeah for sure for um sure. two heads definitely think better than one for sure 
So um, one of the things that uh, I wanted, so I asked you about like the lessons. One of the lessons that yeah. I remember really early on someone taught me. And so the situation is I had a card called Mirror Incubator from the original Mirrodin set. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's a six mana artifact and it says pay six, t six, tap and sacrifice it. Search your library for any number of artifact cards, exile them and create that many 1-1 one, one colorless mirror artifact creature tokens. So the deck that I had, Mirror Incubator, was one of the kill mechanics that I could basically sack it and put like twenty, usually like 24, 25 tokens onto the battlefield mm -hmm. anytime I sacked it. So it was like, if I sack it, I'm killing you next turn, was sort of the idea of it. Um, but, um, so I went and I had it, and I had my six mana, and so I I went to like sack it, and then my opponent and I I was like I don't know like twelve at the time I don't know but my opponent who was um, a really nice older guy I don't remember his name but he was a really cool guy from my original card shop he said wait and he showed me the wrath of God that he had in his hand and he's like if you do this right now. On my turn, I'm going to cast this Wrath of God and kill all your creatures. Mm -hmm. But what you should do is you should wait till my end step. You should you yes. can wait till the last possible moment to do this, and then when you because there's no reason not to wait, and then when you do it, it's you're saving the creatures from the Wrath of God, which is a really nice thing for someone to do inside of a match to teach inside yeah. of a match. Um, which is like something you only really get at like local card shops. Obviously, you're not going to get that sure. at a big tournament. Um, but that lesson really stuck with me. That idea of like when you've got an instant speed effect, always wait till the last possible moment to use it. You know, if it's something you want to kill a creature in combat, do it after blockers are declared, after they decide if they want to do any pump spells or anything, then cast your kill spell. Uh, and obviously, like, there are exceptions to every rule. If there's a reason to play something earlier, uh, obviously you want to. I remember uh, there was, like, a tournament I ended up playing, uh, like, a, a Jeskai control list in a long time ago that someone lent me. And it had a Vendillion click. And I, and I was saying to somebody, like, I, I, I think I literally played Vendillion click in, like, every phase of the game like i've played it <laughs> during my own main phase i have played it during my opponent's upkeep i have played it during my opponent's draw step i have played it during my opponent's combat i have played it during my opponent's end step like just basically like every possible interaction every possible phase you can imagine there was like a reason uh that i had played it <laughs> I even think I played it in one game in my opponent's main phase in response to a spell they cast. So it was like, yeah. just like every phase. <laughs> I've played this Vendillion click in every phase of the game. But like, yeah, just so yeah. like looking at those instants and thinking about the timing of those instants and and waiting and delaying on that timing of those instant effects uh, till the last possible moment. And I think like last possible moment can mean different things, you know, the last possible moment before there is some negative effect of you not doing it then essentially yeah is is sort of the idea of it 
Absolutely. And that, that lesson really stuck with me. I mean, it's it's sort of like a probably a thing a lot of people think of as basic, but I, I you know, I learned it early on and it, it's just I still I still think about that mere incubator and that wrath of God <laughs> sometimes, like when I'm thinking about yeah. how to play magic. Oh, absolutely. Um so uh moving on to the next question, uh uh, one of the things, or I, actually, I want to go to another question we had. Um, uh, so, what are some of the things that you've uh, learned from uh, from coaching other players, or interesting interactions you've had with players where maybe you've learned something about the coaching process, or about the different things that players need to understand, or just about how to be a better coach? Um. I think one of the main, one of the interesting findings that I found from coaching people, uh, I've coached people on Amulet and on Yogg as well, uh, is that a lot, there's, so we don't work with perfect information, obviously. In Magic, there is no such thing as perfect information unless the opponent is hellbent. So <clears throat> what we see during the moments where we don't have perfect information, which is 95% of the match, maybe more, is the nature of the player coming up. So the player will be either defensive, cautious, it will be, <clears throat> or it will be, he will, they will be very brazen, very uh, balls to the wall, aggro as hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I was coaching someone, uh, and uh, we were we were in this scenario where the Elementals opponent just played a Risen Reef, hit a land, passed the turn. <clears throat> we untap with Titan Mana and a Titan in hand, and he snaps like I don't I don't know if the Discord call was like delayed or, or something. He snaps Titan. While I was saying, like, okay, play Titan, Insta grabs Boros Slayers, like, mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hold on, hold on, okay, we got that, so now we're kind of forced to haste it. Uh, but what was your logic in getting that? He's like, oh, like, they're tapped out, like, I, I gotta push the damage. And I'm like, sure. Uh, have you considered the possibility of them having subtle, uh, solitude here? Uh, well, no, not really. Uh, and I said, well, why? They said, well, I usually make them have it. And I'm like, okay, you can play to make them have it, but you have to be aware of when you're doing that and when you're not. While I've seen a lot of players in close to the same scenario against a deck that has solitudes just freezing for a bit like and almost always defaulting to something like double urza saga or uh simic talaria west like or if they have a dryad in hand talaria west valakut like to be extra cautious you know like Mm -hmm. i feel like the nature of the players and of the coaches if that's a term it, it really comes forward uh, mm-hmm. in those in those types of scenarios uh, and that also shows in something like sideboarding like you can be very 
one of the most interesting coaching sessions I've had uh, uh, was with an Amula player, and he played against G-Tron. He beat him game one. Game two, he's like... <clears throat> he brought in the Bazajus. That was clear. And then he was, like, staring at the Force of Vigors. Like, he was, like, moving his cursor around the Force of Vigors. I'm like, so what are you thinking here? They're like, okay, so, like... They mulligan a lot. We have, like, a really good blowout potential with uh, Force of Vigor shown one against Expedition Map. And uh, I feel like that could be good. And I'm like, okay, what do you want to cut? And they said, okay, I want to cut this, 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 and this. I'm like, sure, let's give it a try. Uh, usually during my coaching, I... <clears throat> more often than not, I just tell... Uh, tell the person right at the start, I'll intervene whenever you want me to intervene. Mm -hmm. uh, in the meantime, I'm like just writing notes or uh, preparing like the post-mortem of the mm -hmm. league that I usually do. So I, I don't want to intervene and I don't, don't want to tell them, look, 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 I, I'll only intervene if they are actively missing lethal. Mm -hmm. Or if I tell them, you have lethal this turn. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a puzzle to them. So um, he brought in the Force of Vigors. He didn't see them in the first hand. That hand was like, eh, it was iffy. But like, it was a borderline keep. Uh, it had no amulet, but it had like the, the grazer into... Had grazer, the mana base was kind of shaky. Um, it had grazer into, into titan. I think it had an explore as well. Like, you're not going to mulligan those hands, but it does feel bad that, to keep him against Tron. Um, and opponent goes Sphere. Uh, it goes Star, actually. They draw the Force of Vigor that turn. They're like, huh, this is not great. Uh, play Grazer Pass. Opponent just goes Peace, Scrying. And they resolve a card on three, and mm -hmm. there's no chance for Amulet there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, so what do you feel went wrong there, if anything? And he said, well, my opponent didn't have a map, so it felt wrong. And I'm like, okay, that's one way of looking at things, but like, that's not the only way. Like, you could have, say, kept. Uh, I don't know, like, you can do that for, like, the, the off chance that that might happen, but it, it really, it, I feel like all of this led to, like, a really disparaging difference between players and their attitude towards the game state, which, mm -hmm. to me, was extremely interesting to watch. Yeah, that sounds like, and I, I think I've generally seen a lot of this where, people see the potential in a sideboard card to do something good and then they mm -hmm. bring in that sideboard card and they will cut and I, the thing that i see so often cut when people bring in sideboard cards is they cut like an explore and it can be other things but explore is like a big one and to me it's like that explore is so good right like <laughs> explore is amazing 
Like, you're drawing a card, you're getting an extra land drop. Like, sign me up. You know, like, that yeah. is, like, premium effect. And it's like, yes, this card is doing something good. Yes, this card has potential. You know what else has potential is Explore, right? Like, Explore <laughs> has potential to ramp you yep. to a primeval titan that wins you the game. And it's like, you've got to do this. Everything comes <laughs> with a cost of, you know, what is it that you're cutting? How often is it that that card you're cutting was actually going to win you the game? If you're cutting the land, yeah. how often are you going to lose because you didn't have that land? If you're cutting Explore or another, like... I see people cut grazers all the time in like slow matchups and I'm like, okay, like I understand that you're not as excited about grazer in the slow matchup, <laughs> but it's like, it's definitely doing something. It can get your dryads in under, you know, through like, you know, prismatic ending. It doesn't care about and under some like interaction, like it's not, yeah. uh, it can help you with some double amulet gun lines to net yourself like huge amounts of mana and stuff like it can be even just like plus one mana to get to tighten a turn faster so like i think people are too quick to think about sideboard cards and think about like and it should never be what sideboard cards do something in a matchup it should be mm -hmm. what sideboard cards are better than the cards i'm cutting and it's like sort of back to that limited thing you said is like what are the worst cards in your main deck and what are the best cards in your sideboard and you do a one for one cut of the worst card in your main deck for the best card in your sideboard then the second worst card in your main deck for the second best card in your sideboard until the worst card in your main deck is still better than the best card mm -hmm. in your sideboard is basically like and and that happens pretty quick because the main deck is like it's a very tuned machine all the cards in it are going to be good mm -hmm. yeah yeah for sure um i i, I think uh, one of the one of the interesting things that i also got from coaching mm -hmm. is um players i've i've found that players are have certain players have very very ingrained habits mm -hmm. and sometimes it's hard to like put them to give a step back mm -hmm. and acknowledge why they're doing a certain play or taking a certain decision so one of the notes that i took was uh it was a game two against blue eye control uh they won game one the game goes uh, Blue White goes with a land go. Uh, Amulet goes with Saga, gets marched, uh, and they lose the game like eight turns later. Mm -hmm. Game three, they have like this really decent hand. Like, like they can they can play the long game. They have a cavern. They're not in a hurry, mm -hmm. and they snap go forest Amulet go. Without, like, Dryad, without a Bounce Land, the hand just had Explorers, mm -hmm. uh, and they just get Endinged. And uh, a mixture of, like, Fire Ices uh, and some lands and some key lands, like Fire Ice, the Castle Garenbrig, into having, like, an Aether Gust for a Primeval Titan, and they lost that game. And, and I said, well, 
why did you play the saga on one on turn two on game two and they said well like that like that's what i usually do mm -hmm. i'm like yes but you're playing against a deck that you you are aware that they play that card right yeah yeah i am so why did you take that decision like your blowout potential is immense mm -hmm. here and they said, I, I, I don't know, like, I legit forgot. Like, I saw Saga, I played it on one, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and it was the same thing on game three. Like, you could very easily send back that amulet. Mm -hmm. Like, fairly easily. You could, you could play it to beta counter war, mm -hmm. if, if they choose to counter it. Like, it, it played no role in that game. Um, you can just take it slow. Mm -hmm. uh, and some players like have the ingrained habit of like Saga on one, Amulet on one, um, Titan with six mana no matter what. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very hard to like tear down those walls and rebuild, you know? Yeah, it, that reminds me of something that I think about like sort of from uh, like playing chess a little bit, which is like... Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of decisions in any complicated game. There's a lot of decisions you have to make based on, like, heuristics and instincts of, like, okay, Sagan 1 is usually correct. Or, you know, you might have a heuristic that it's usually correct to Sagan 1 unless you're low on resources, then Sagan 2 or something like that. But whatever, you have mm -hmm. some sort of heuristic, you have some sort of rules. But then, like, there's also what, like, you know, in chess they call like a tactical sense, which is you start to notice things on the board that like make you get this alarm bell going off in your mind that there might be some sort of like tactics going on. And this is a moment you specifically have to calculate, well, if I do this, they do this. If I do this, they do this. If I do this, they do this. And mm -hmm. I, I think that that developing this, this makes me think of like helping players develop that sort of like tactical sense of thinking about the different ways that things can sequence out. It's like, yes, I think there's a, a saga on one is not a bad heuristic to have. It's not a bad thought to yeah. have of like, you should be usually sogging on one, but when should it that should be the norm? It should be the norm, but it shouldn't happen every single time. Right. But with like knowing when the alarm bells go off, that you should think about whether or not mm -hmm. to Saga on one. And I think, like, I'm against a blue-white control deck. They might have a March of Otherworldly Light or a Spreading Seas. That should set off your tactical senses. And that should yeah. make you think, do I want to Saga on one? And that doesn't mean you shouldn't Saga on one. There's definitely hands where you still want to Saga on one because the upside, uh, like, of potentially you know, what you could get out of that might be more important than the downside of the potential blowout. Or you might not be able to win a game. Like, it's like sometimes you have to take risks to win a game because, like, it's like, well, if they have the blowout, they have it. But if I play around it, I'm not winning anyway. Right? Mm -hmm. um, exactly. But, but, but knowing those moments when the tactical sense should go off, when the tactical, when you should be saying... Okay, here's the moment where I should should pause and I should think through specifically what should happen rather than, you know, falling back on the heuristics. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important and maybe like more difficult uh skill for players to master. Yeah. Uh yeah, I can I can definitely see that. 
So one of the things I wanted to mention of like, I think one of the biggest lessons that I have learned from coaching other players is don't take anything for granted. Like I, there are so many things that when I play Amulet, I don't even begin to think about. Mm -hmm. And I see like, you know, some players with Amulet have like, this is still something that they need to learn or they need to look for. So like a big thing is I have watched so many games of people playing Amulet either in coaching or outside of coaching just in tournaments because if somebody's playing Amulet in a tournament I'm at, of, of course I'm going to watch that game. Yeah. And people will not realize that they can cast Primeval Titan that turn. Like they just mm -hmm. won't realize that they have the six that they can make six mana that turn and that they can cast primeval titan and to me yeah. like that's the first question i ask myself like every turn every turn is <laughs> like yeah. yeah 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 can i cast <laughs> primeval titan yeah is there anything that's gonna go horribly wrong if i cast primeval titan probably not okay i'm casting primeval titan like that's that's like the first thing i ask and i no say, fail yeah yeah yeah, and like learning that there, and I think just coming to realize that there are so many players at so many different stages of development as players that you can't take you can't take anything for granted as far as like uh, as far as like what players know or what players are going to uh, like understand or what players are going to need to help work on, and I think that's also like an important thing to also look at in analyzing like your own play and improving your own play is like don't take anything for granted like really think about all the different decisions that you make in a game there's mulligan decisions yes. there's land sequencing decisions every time you sack a saga you're picking a map or a amulet every time you play a titan there's so many choices of lands that you can get Every time you choose mm -hmm. to cast a spell or not to cast a spell or choose to cast one spell over another, there's so many different decisions. And not taking any decision for granted as far as, like, what is the potential in that decision for me to have thought better about it or to improve upon it. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's interesting cause I, I, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, is about some of your methodology for coaching because, um, mm -hmm. I, I actually have a little bit of a different methodology for coaching where I, I find I, I very rarely in coaching, like watch other players actually like play a game. Like very rarely do we play through like a league together or something and yeah much more often I do replays rather than leagues because I, I don't know, for me, it's just been like, and I have done the backseating of a league, but every time I do that, I feel like there's so much time that's spent like with the, with the two of us sitting silently while they are thinking about some sort of smaller, insignificant decision, which is like an important thing to do but maybe not to me an important way to use the coaching time. If that, but that's the that's the way I see it differently. Uh, I think the speed of the decision mm -hmm. shows me the experience they have with mm -hmm. the deck. 
So it gives me a better range. Sure. So let's say, let's say that someone is waiting on like a minute mm -hmm. to decide to play their turn one amulet in game three against uh, uh, Hammer. Let's Hammer, whatever. Like that's kind of an obvious obvious thing. Or mm -hmm. uh, like this happens a lot in packed scenarios. Like packed is single-handedly the card that tells me if the if they know what they're doing or not because there are so many time frames of resolving the summoner's pact mm -hmm. that tell me the experience like if if your turn begins and you snap pact and you wait that is red flag for me that's red flag city mm -hmm. like if you're pacting that fast Mm -hmm. You like what are you thinking here? Mm -hmm. Like, you packed it first, and then you're thinking if it's Sighten or Dryad. Like, mm -hmm. come on, it's not really how it goes. And then you have like the other people that take forever to resolve the pact, but it, they use that time to like think through everything. So they mm -hmm. packed, so they think for like thirty seconds, play pact, get Titan, get haste, get T West, uh, uh, Talaria, uh, T. -T um, TOS Simic, like snap. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just gives me like a better feel mm -hmm. for their experience with the deck and how they are navigating it. Um, which I feel is a better way for me to get feedback. So if if an opponent is snap making wrong decisions, mm -hmm. like I can give better feedback related to that mm -hmm. than the player who is taking a very long time and it leads to those awkward silences uh but he does everything right you mm -hmm. know what i mean well okay so i i, I kind of have two thoughts regarding that story number one uh i don't think you lose that in replays because i think often there is a lot of opportunities to pause and think about what would you do in this scenario and you have the benefit of hindsight and things as well but just like specifically looking at the scenario and thinking about it, and you can still see how long they think and what they're considering and stuff. So I, I, I don't necessarily believe that's lost in replays, but of course, you know, it's very okay. different uh, in games. But then the other yeah. thing that uh, I was thinking about is I don't necessarily think the person who snaps packed is necessarily wrong. And they, here's here's why. No, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm not saying they're wrong, but like no, but I'm saying like snapping packed and hasty. then. The snapping pact and then thinking i'm not saying in all situations is wrong because i think i play amulet quite different from how i've watched a lot of other people play amulet which is i feel like i see so many people where they will plan out the entire turn and every single contingency right from the moment before they even make the first decision oh okay okay so this is a very important addendum yeah uh one, I don't speak unless asked mm -hmm. to speak, but I ask them to think out loud. Mm -hmm. But so that 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 like if they go like silent mode yeah. for the opponent's turn, and then they snap the pact, you kind of feel where I'm coming from. If that's the case, right? Right, right. No, I I get what you, I get what you're saying. But what I was going to say is like, and I think this is a way that I think some players who are struggling especially if you're struggling with time management with amulet because i know i see a lot of people time out 
is mm-hmm. figuring out decisions that you 100% know you're going to make this turn. Anything you 100% know that you are going to do, just do that yeah. and then think. Right? Like Yeah. Now that that there that's a difficult thing sometimes because you can at that can make you jump and then realize oh no i should have thought about that more so you know make sure that that's ac- you should make sure that it's actually something that you 100 percent know that you're going to be doing before you do it but i mean there are turns where i 100 percent know i'm casting primeval titan so i'm going to cast the primeval titan before i think about the lands why? Because if my opponent's subtleties, if my opponent's solitudes in response to the amulet trigger, which they shouldn't, but they might, you know, yeah. any information I have leading up to that moment might inform the way that I resolve that trigger. And mm-hmm. that way I'm not wasting my time thinking about how I'm going to resolve an amulet trigger for an am- for a primeval titan that gets countered, right? Sure, that makes sense. So I, I think learning to notice like what are the absolute 100 percent sure i may i'm doing this this turn make that decision and then say okay now that i'm at a decision point now that i'm at the tree of possibilities that's the moment when i stop and i think and, and i make decisions i don't know okay that's my approach yeah. and maybe it's a bad approach because maybe Maybe for some people, they will think something's 100% and then they will realize later that it wasn't, uh, which, mm-hmm. which is a danger with it. But uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's at least my approach to playing Amulet. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. I totally get that. Yeah. I, I, think, I think as long as the person feels like they left mm-hmm. learning more, uh, it's... I, I feel like it's money well spent. The doesn't really matter the 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 methodology you get mm-hmm. to that. Like uh, we as as coaches, you as a more official coach, and me just like randomly people approach me. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we we serve as like as a teaching moment mm-hmm. for that league for that event, mm-hmm. uh, for that prelim, whatever, like, that's all, like, so our extent goes to that, mm-hmm. but if the lessons they they get, or some play patterns that they weren't aware of, or some feedback that they receive helps them improve, mm-hmm. I think that's money well spent, like, yeah. I, I remember I paid uh, for... The, the best money that I've ever spent on tutoring mm-hmm. was a tutor session with this guy at my university. Uh, he was full-time working. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was taking his doctorate. Uh, and I l- legit paid, paid him for his time because I wanted to learn how to study. Like, mm-hmm. I had no method mm-hmm. whatsoever. Like... And uh, I thought, well, I, I've, I've done uh, tutoring in the past. I've tutored math, English, uh, and physics. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, uh, I've, I've, I tutored people so I could get the money from them. So I could pay you to teach me how to learn. Mm-hmm. So I can teach better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, 
I feel that if people leave the call, they turn off the Discord or the Skype call, uh, and they get the sense that what they did was good, and they and they like message you afterwards saying, "Hey, like I two three that league, but now I four one." Like, I feel like I learned something. Like, that's, for me, the only reason why I do it. Like, you could go 0-5 during the, the, the league, and I could not give a shit. And mm-hmm. if you feel like you've improved, that's great. If you 5-0 that league, and I felt like I taught you nothing, I go, I, I leave richer, but feeling that my time was not worth it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I, I think... One thing that maybe I I see less Magic players realize is I think you, no matter where you're at, you always have something to learn. The, you never yeah. reach the point. I mean, I have, like, I have a PhD in mathematics. So, like, that's theoretically, like, the highest degree one can receive. And I still regularly am learning new things in mathematics. And then on mm-hmm. top of that, there is a, a, a sort of corollary to there's always something you can learn. There are always people you can learn from. There is always somebody yeah. that knows something that you do not know. And whether that's through watching videos, whether that's through coaching, or interacting with streams or asking questions on Discord. There are there's always somebody that you can learn something from. I learn things all the time from watching Fran's videos and streams. I I yeah. I think he's a great player. I I watched I've watched videos of Red Faced Menace. I've watched videos mm-hmm. of all kinds of amulet players. I've watched Canister and all the time, I I feel, I, watch... I feel like I'm I feel like I'm missing in that list. Eventually, I have to like create content other than tag team because I I kind of I kind of flirted. I'm sorry, this is like a tangent. Yeah. I flirted with creating a YouTube and just uploading vods of like. Yeah, leads. you should. I I think it would yeah. be good. Um, yeah, give maybe. you something to maybe. promote on the podcast. Oh, for sure. For and the sure. first video can be you and me building random amulet decks. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do that. <laughs> and but yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, so I guess what I was saying is you always have something to learn and you always have something to learn from. So every time I'm watching anybody play amulet or any other deck, I my thought process is what does this person know that I don't know? Because there's there's usually something, even if you see a list that you think, it, especially like if you see a list that top eights, I, I do this especially with amulet lists, if I see a list that top eights and it looks like nonsense to me, I will say, okay, this list might be nonsense. This person might not be building amulet correct, but they know something. Right? They know something I don't know. They have captured some sort of idea, some sort of interaction, some 
little piece of what the metagame is about, what the interactions, what are the types of ways that you can attack some sorts of matchups that I don't know. And that doesn't mean I have to follow in their footsteps or choose their cards choices, but I want to know what it is they know that I don't know. And I think that's a good way yeah. to always approach things as far as like, what can you learn? What, what do other people know that you don't know? And that's why I think coaching is like a, a valuable thing because it's a sort of like a, a, a very direct way sometimes to get like a, a certain person's very particular knowledge that, that you might not possess. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that uh, I, this is like two small rants that I'm going to have. Like one is like in, in deck discords overall. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is related to coaching. I feel like there's better advice to give to the people that are asking questions, right? Mm -hmm. And they aren't, for example, talking and writing to be heard or read. Mm -hmm. Like the people asking questions on discords and uh, on social media, like those are the people that are interested in coaching because those are the people that feel like mm -hmm. I can share this doubt that I have mm -hmm. and I want to see I, I want to see it uh, finalized. Like I, I want an answer. I want a methodology. I want an approach on how to deal with this. Um, and another small thing is that I think there was there was a bit of a uh, on on Twitter uh, a few weeks back. I I think there was this uh, kind of drama on coaching mm -hmm. when it came to to magic. And people were charging like 10 bucks an hour or something like that, or minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Like, know your fucking worth, please. Mm -hmm. Please, 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 please. Like, Punt has played Amulet forever. I have played Amulet for much less, but still probably more than you. Uh, just, we know our worth and we charge what I think is a fair amount for the service that we provide. And also don't cheap out on people that are there to actively make good for the community. Like coaching is most bit, most content creators can go a lifetime without doing coaching. Like that's just, I, I feel like other than the, the financial gain, like there is something noble in giving out to the community. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've done a lot of charity work. I've done charity coaching uh, and I don't do it anymore. And for example, some people are like, oh, can I, can I give away to charity and you'll coach me because you did that in the past? Like, no, it's a different situation. Like I had more time back then. Uh, like just mm -hmm. know if you're coaching, know your worth. Mm -hmm. If you're coached, know that the person it, it, make sure that the person there is available for you and is giving you the correct the service that you want during the coaching time mm -hmm. yeah. i think uh so we're about an hour and 20 minutes into <laughs> jesus that flew by yeah so uh are you okay with wrapping up now then oh I absolutely i i found i found uh, like what i just did kind of felt like a <laughs> A closing statement, but yeah, let's let's wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm Nicholas Bruno, also known as Punt and Wine. You can find me on Twitter 
as Punt and Wine, where you can either uh, direct message me or click on my Calendly link if you'd like to schedule uh, a coaching session. I also am on YouTube as Punt and Wine and on Twitch as Punt and Wine, though I don't stream that often. Uh, our other co-host who isn't here today is Andy Wilson. Uh, he is on Twitter, as he likes to say. I don't think he has anything else he wants to promote right now. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> if you want to find him, you can find him. He's on Twitter. Like, yeah, yeah. He is a person with an account on yeah. the Bird app. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, my name is uh, José Muniz. Uh, Muniz0801 on Goldfish and MTGO. J-O-S-M-O-N-I-Z-8 on Twitter. Uh, the J-O-S-M-O-N... Uh, Munish0801 on Twitch as well. I recently changed my Twitch handle because I thought to myself, I'm going to start streaming, and I haven't still. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the intentions are there. We'll, we'll see how, how work comes and how I can uh, make it work, both of them. But yeah, this was a really good episode of Titan Talk, by the way. <laughs> Had fun. Yeah. Anyways, see you.